0: Now, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me on the phone, as always, it is co-host Alan Niven. Bonjour, Alan. How are you? Oh, sorry, Sir Alan.
1: (laughs) I I think so, too. I think I got a knighthood last yesterday.
0: That's right. Um, I'm good. (laughs) That's good. And and the other voice you're hearing is uh, Frankie Sullivan of, of course, Survivor. And the reason we're calling him Sir Allen is that yesterday I got a fan letter and it was all talking about how they love Sir Allen, Sir Allen, Sir Allen, Sir Allen. So now he is now going to be Sir Allen from from this point forth. But uh, as we say also in Montreal, uh, bon, <laughs> bonjour Frankie, how are you? Nice to have you um, back, by I'm, the way.
2: Oh, thank you, Mick. Nice to be back. So wait, before we go, Alan, so have you been knighted or have you been knighted by us players? musicians sir knighted like by a, a, a fan
1: frankie
2: yeah that's what well i could say a few other things but i'll i'll be i'll be the artist i won't
1: <laughs> yeah, no it was, a, it was a fan who called me sir Alan, so i told mitch let's take it
2: i think it's got a lot of humor to it i like i like it's a play on words i like it, it
1: exactly exactly yeah. so, so how, how, how's things with you in, in, in Illinois Frankie how, how's your summer are you mm-hmm. dealing with all this bullshit and COVID
2: you know what it was it's it's funny you mention that Mitch I, I was I was going to tell you this a couple of days ago you know, yeah. I kind of settled into this whole China virus whatever corona thing I figured well because you go through these inner battles I'm going to travel I'll fly I'll do it this way and I'll do it that way and then you, like, hear of one of your friends that gets it, and you, like, barely survive And I just settled in and said, I think I'll go through my amps and my guitars. And I got my favorites on. Then I went to... I think I better... I have a favorite batch of amps, and I need one other one. I found one in Norway, so that was a three-month thing. And then, you know what I've been doing? Working on my guitar tone and playing, which has been... It's never... It's always a sanctuary, it's never jaded. So I just put my energy and focus in like researching. Like I have boxes of our all, all of our old photos, and actually I found two full of tour itineraries. You remember those? Leg two, that you know, went up to leg 14. Alan, and wanna admit you, it went up to leg 14, and I said, okay, that's enough for today. But I kind of settled in and said, you know, I'll just hang out to November. See what goes on. See what goes
0: on. Now, while you're I, hanging out, do do you go through the box of tapes and, and find unreleased demos or find live versions and say, hey, you know what? Maybe I could put this together as some kind of compilation or, or box set. Or uh, is there any music lying around that that might, you know, is there is there like the acoustic version of "Eye of the Tiger" or something?
2: You know, the, there's a lot of really good um, unreleased and for a bucket of reasons, um, material and stuff that we reported with the producers at the time and outtakes and things that didn't make the record. And, you know, you listen to them now and, and some of them I understand and then the ones that have kind of a story that I don't really like, but whatever it's fact, I don't really understand because they're so good. They're kind of like, okay, this is a rough next roll. Some of these, I have cassettes still, because that's what they came on back then. Some of these cassettes, I would just put them on a piece of vinyl or put them on a CD or put them out and let people listen to them, because some of them are really good. Right. You know, when well, you always you know, had you know, the Frankie, jobs
1: where... Yes. You know, Frankie, there was, there was no such thing as a demo disc. The record companies used to call them unreleased masters. And when you had a hit, boy, oh, boy, those things that you thought you were doing quick in the afternoon just to feel out a song and see if it had shake no it becomes an unreleased master and eventually finds its way out um you know and, and there's an awful lot of songs that you go back and go you know that's kind of curious it didn't fit with everybody's idea of an album at the time but it's got its merits so put it out
0: let me ask you about I that uh, for, for both of you. In I ter- agree, Alan.
2: It's, it's interesting. It's very in,
0: interesting. In terms of the business, though, uh, w- you know, a lot of times when you're recording, the the record company will say, OK, you're going to go in and do Appetite for Destruction. You're going to go in and do Eye of the Tiger. Whatever you record, if there's 30 songs, they're all ours, the heck with you. Um, was that something that, that you ran into a lot, where they sort of said, We're, everything that, that you've recorded is ours? And did you then therefore have to sort of record some stuff secretly off the books without letting... I mean, is it sort of that, you know, like a, a spy caper where for to, to get your songs out? Or did you have a freedom to record demos and just have them to be yours? Um, Frankie?
2: Well, it's a, for us, we were lucky because... Now, and you know, you can dig this. Because you would say of all people, the Sky Brothers never really... They never toiled or, or bothered us with our um, with our, um, our creations or our process or what should be on a record. I don't remember them ever even approaching us, well, this shouldn't be on, that shouldn't be on, um, which is kind of a blessing, but I do remember that, especially early on in my really formative years, because I got lucky really young. Um, I talked to you about this before, Mitch. The producers I worked, uh were so good that everybody was kind of always on board. And I always, I always felt like, well, if I'm going to hire a guy with the ridiculous, crazy good reputation for doing amazing work, and, you know, this, their bio is like, okay, I grew up listening to that music. They, they just, and again, Alan, you know, at the time, you don't realize this, they, they let us alone with our with our songs, with the process, you know, maybe they stopped down to the studio a couple of times, but they, they never interfere with our creative process. So we never had that record company kind of meddling in. And then, you know, of course, John, Alan, you might you must know John. John Burke wouldn't let him do that anyhow, because he, the one thing he always appreciated was the creative process. And he tr- entrusted us and our producers to get it done i got an email i still send emails from him and i had found a um some old a german a a, a lead two from germany and i there was a picture of him and i sent it to him i said gee it looks like you're reprimanding me he sent me a back and i don't i don't remember reprimanding you with a big smiley face of course he said but we did differ about rule and Alan, you can appreciate this going across the ponds you know playing wherever you can play and I don't really know if we did but he he ended it with aren't you glad I made you go so that was another case of I think good direction when you're young but also going you know there was a lot of they let us a our creative process and then when it came to touring I was very young and I just wanted to go out and play but we had a lot of good direction and I always say this, even though it started before that, you know, when Rocky three came out, that was the best video you could ever have for for a song. So, and that was a hit all over the world. So we just started going. So they let, they let us along. You know, John said, I always trusted, and he said this to you, I always trusted you with the creative process. We may have differed probably because I was young, but I did go anyhow with, going to the countries we went to at one time, but maybe when you're young you're nervous, I don't really remember, but I went he said, but I always trusted you with the music and the creative stuff with like the producers, so we always had really good feedback, they let us alone they really did See,
1: that's well, that- that- Frankie, it, correct me if I'm wrong Frankie, but am I right in remembering that uh, you, you say you were young, but didn't you do a lot of studio work um, prior to Survivor. I mean, you you obviously knew your stuff and knew your chops and knew the studio. And, uh, you know, that's that's a good reason to leave you alone because, you, you know, you know what you're doing. Am I
2: right in remembering that? Yes. Yeah, see, Mitch, spoken like a true, really good manager. You are correct. And it's, oddly enough, I really didn't put that, I, I think that, but I never really put that into the words you just did, but I did. I got around quite oh, yeah. a bit. And, you know, Alan, I always believed in being quietly affected. So if I had friends or met people, like, let's just take like an Eddie Money, for example, or um, like mm. a job if there was kind of a vibe and they, they would invite me and, yeah, Alan, it would segue doing other things in the studio, and I always liked it, um, although I'll tell you a story about perspective with that, I always liked it enough, and it was Richie Zito, Alan, you probably know him, he's a great guy, I said to me one day, the thing is, when you do the work, not everybody else might, may know or needs to know, but the people in the studio, like the assistant engineers, the studio managers, the, the session guys, they all kind of know, they, they're aware of a different thing that people do may not be out there in the public, but amongst the studio managers and owners and the players that people are and stuff, I kind of had a little bit of an in there, and I I liked it. I really loved it.
1: Well, Frankie, I've I've always had, you might find this a strange perception, but I've always had a, a viewpoint that there were basically only six songs that existed. I love you. I hate you. I feel good. I feel bad. The world is wonderful. The world is screwed up. And once I got that perception, it clarified for me that what people connect to is the personality, the character, and the idiosyncrasy of the performer and the artist. And the best thing you can do is support the confidence of the artist so that they really do express themselves because that's the magic you connect to the person.
2: I agree with that. I totally agree with that. That, that I think to me is like writing a, a song that works and it becomes a hit song because it's endeared by so many people for who knows, everybody hears a song and has a different take from it, but when it rings enough bells with enough people, that's how I relate to that connection. So back again. In, maybe that's why they they let us be. Maybe that's why they never interfere with our creative process.
1: Well, one one thing is evident, Frankie, is that you definitely had the ability to connect to and forgive this terminology because it can be taken the wrong way. But I used to call it hitting the main vein, and the main vein to me was a collective consciousness where you didn't you didn't have to rely on a, on a a song to be played and played and played on the, on the radio for it to finally permeate into an audience. But you had a song that, and I love the terminology used, rang bells. And it rang bells in lots of lots of people's hearts and minds. And that's hitting the main vein. And you certainly hit the main vein more than once.
2: What's well, nice of you to say? But it's also interesting because I have I heard High on You on the radio like last week, and I turned it up. And I was listening. You know, it's such a like pure pop song. You know what I'm saying? It's very poppy. But when I listen to it, I I I think that it's really good. The performance, the lead vocal performance, is phenomenal. It sells the song, and I think the lyrics. A lot of people that relate to it. And I always looked at it like. You know, everybody's going to say, oh, I love all my songs. But you and I know that that that's probably not true. And it's not true in my case. But I always really liked that song. When I heard it again through this different lens, I loved it again. Because I understood the simplicity of what it said and how people would take it. And it rang with a lot of people like we talked about. So it's funny. I'm sitting in my car listening to Bluesville and I'm switching the channels and I really don't go by those 80 channels much. And I hit it. I said, oh, it's high on you. And it was great that I turned it up and I said, that's a good song. And not egotistically, just because I could, I could kind of depart myself from being part of it mm-hmm. all. Just listen kind of as a listener. And believe me, there's a couple exactly. lines where I said, okay, well. There's a couple of lines where I do say, okay, well, enough with trying to be clever. But even though, the, even in those lines, they're simple enough to where I don't think, I know for me, I'm not sure how Jim, he might have paid attention to that more than I did. I think the simplicity of it is what really resonated with the people. Let me ask you then. It's,
1: it's, 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 but, it's, sorry, go ahead.
0: Well, I was just going to say then, what then makes a, a great song and makes a song memorable? Because when I look at what you've done, Alan, you've got Rock Me from Great White, and here we are in 2020, and you hear Rock Me and you go, yeah, it's a great song. I mean, you turn it up, and of course, Eye of the Tiger, you hear the... Now, he was talking about you need the vocalist and the to sell the performance. Is it sort of everything has to fall into place where you have to have the right vocalist and the right solo and the right words or... I mean, what what really makes a good song? And I'll let both of you uh, answer, and I'll sit back on this.
1: You go, Frankie.
2: No, I want to listen to what you say, because I've liked what you said earlier. It was nice. Go ahead, and I think I can pick up from it. I, th- I think
1: one of the, the aspects of, of that, Mitch, is, and you've heard me say this a number of times, is and some people put it in the terminology of pleasing yourself and i've often said the minute you try and create something in anticipation of an audience then you become an entertainer rather than an artist and i think first of all you have to do something that speaks to yourself and again it's going you know there's got to be a standard to it there's got there's got to be a quality of construction a, a quality of content and I like a little bit of intelligence in a rock and roll content. And when I say intelligence, I mean that both emotionally and even spiritually. The, you know, There are a lot of dumb songs out there, but the ones that live longest with me are the ones that speak to me on a slightly deeper level. And there's also the aspect of, you think you've got something and you think you've got a good song, but you really don't know until the audience tells you that you do and reinforces your your thought that, yeah, we've got something here. And of course, the irony at that point is the song is no longer yours. It belongs to the audience at that point, um, because they don't know exactly what experience you're trying to convey or what you've been through to craft your point of view. They have to see it through the lens of their own experience. So you kind of have to go, OK, you know, it belongs to them and what they associate it with or what they think it means. But, you know, it's, it's an interesting point that uh, Frankie was, was uh, expressing there, that um, you, you get to a point where you can hear something on the radio that you recorded or wrote or, or, or produced, and you actually hear it as a listener. And you actually hear it objectively, and it's kind of nice because you sit there and you can react as a fan. And then there are also those songs that you hear and you go, God damn it, I screwed that freaking chorus up. That melody in the chorus is wrong, you know? And you sit there and you go, I'd go back in the studio and fix that right now, 30 years later, if I could.
2: (laughs) (laughs) True. I think you know what it is, you guys. I really think that no matter what we do, um, not only in our business, but maybe more than creatively, but especially with music, I think that people in general can really get a sense of authenticity. So it can be like an amazing, let's use Stairway to Heaven, which no one should ever really use. You know, so that, but then again, you can also write a crazy, ridiculously poppy song that kind of rings a bell in that way, only it's pop. But the people sense Okay, it's authentic. It's not, um, it's not, a, I used to call it target writing because I have all these slangs. I never really understood why people would get in the room and this might be nice. You know, they're trying to, Allen and Mitch are trying to target a listener. And I don't think that that can be done because I think the listener feels emotion. If that emotion of that song, they feel it right and it really, rings a bell again to repeat myself um they sense some kind of authenticity i never really put my finger on it but i know that whenever i was involved with something that felt forced um, a suggestion of well the it may sound better like this and then it becomes something more scientific you know, like formula based it doesn't really feel authentic and as as a listener myself i I lose it, including in my own work. I can lose that, and not and be very not disinterested in what I'm listening to.
1: Alan, just uh, I, gonna... I know, I know exactly what you mean.
0: Yeah, I, I want to just take up on that with you for a second, Alan, because you were in uh, involved with two bands that very much had the MTV generation in mind, that very much had sort of you know males, you know, seventeen to twenty five in mind. When it came to songwriting, did, did you did you do that formulaic stuff with a targeted audience and say, okay, I need to speak to this kid who's 19 in Wisconsin? Or did you just do what Frankie said and go, I've got to be authentic. I'll write a song. And if they connect, great. And if not, I'll write another song.
1: Well, I, I think the first response I have to that is I absolutely fell in love with American rock and roll, American blues, American musicians, when I was a little kid living in England. So I was deeply immersed in the feel and the sound of American music. But, you know, if you want to talk about formula, my formula, for example, with um, Guns N' Roses was, don't let anybody mess with them. They are who they are. Let them be what they... They are, and my formula with Great White was, you know what, I don't, I don't want this band to be one more Hollywood hair band. To me, if I'm going to take a point of reference, my point of reference was these guys are more like a 1970s British blues band than anything else. <laughs> so that was the extension of my formula, and if you want to talk about formula. I mean, think of the fact that the two tracks that broke the band, both of them were almost eight minutes long, and you weren't allowed to put out a song over four minutes at radio. Well, we turned that on its head with Face the Day, and then I looked at that and went, you know what? That was a repetitive dynamic. Let's write a song with a developing dynamic, and we wrote Rock Me, and that was almost eight minutes long too, and radio loved it so we beat the formula and we beat the formula by being left alone and being allowed to do what i wanted to do
2: when when I you agree s- with that yeah, I Yes, agree I, with that. I agree and with both that Both those too. bands just to, just to reiterate and alan it's 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 being a guitar player first off that's how i got started you know I, a lot of my friends and english musicians and quite frankly all my idols they all started and grew up listening to the American, and Freddie King, you know, Albert King, Albert Collins, um, Muddy Waters, yes. uh, yes. Red Belly, you know, Keith Richards, you know, those are the guys he's running around with uh, Muddy Waters and Chuck Berry's Greatest Hits is like his favorite two records. You know that story. He gets on yes. the train and Mick Jagger's got the same record. They, they I don't want to say they're ahead of the curve. You know what I always say, Alan, I wish, and this is how I do and in a good way, I wish I would have been born a little bit sooner because those years, those guys are a little bit older, but they were, they were really in tune with what these blues artists and the American people were doing more so than the American players were. And oh, then absolutely. came along like I a Leslie mean... West. Then came along a Leslie West, let's say yeah. or Joe Walsh at Uh-oh. the time, or James game word where they started paying attention to them as well. But you always go back to Chuck Berry, Muddy Waters, Freddie King. You know, there's it, all of it. There's a big, the yeah. English guys are, the guitar players like Beck and Clapton and Mark Knopfler. all those guys I just think are just great artists and great players. That's their roots. Oh, the, the, listening to
1: The those sound guys. of them, Frankie, was amazing. I mean, I've got to tell you that when I first heard Howling Wolf. It was one of the scariest voices I'd ever heard. I had no idea what he was singing about, but I goddamn knew he meant it. And it was an incredibly profound I- experience. And I think that was a similar reaction that a lot of us kids in England had. And, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a little part of us that all wanted to be black and come from the Delta, you know, because that sounded like yeah. the most profound and genuine expression that we had heard. Especially coming out of the pop of the 50s.
2: Powerful stuff. Also, um, undeniably, totally 100% authentic. Period. The yeah. power of their music will blow your mind. It was heavy stuff. And do you
1: think you, do you know, guys
2: had more of appreciation for it? I really believe that.
1: Do, do you know that when the Rolling Stones first went to chess studios in Chicago? They met Muddy Waters. Do you know what he was doing? He was We're painting he the was walls it. of the studio. I mean, yeah, you know. I, I don't that, know I
2: used to white, yeah, 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 that's true.
1: Yeah, that's I mean, true. that's he worked around around how studio lot. I mean, he was making an extra buck by whitewashing the walls of the studio. And, you know, these kids from in London come in and they're overwhelmed and impressed to meet him. And he's looking at them and saying, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing Can with you our music. Can you imagine
2: that? Can you imagine, yeah, imagine the that. power of that to have such an effect on, because the guys in the Stones are hardcore, man. They're they're great. So you'd imagine have that much of an effect on a Keith Richards and a Mick Jagger, and think about it, or Eric Clapton. Yeah. That's powerful. Yes, it but is. But then the blues and blues-based music, you can't, some of the blues nowadays, Alan and Mitch, it's it's almost kind of some of it that the stuff that I tend myself, I tend to not want to listen to, is a new kind of like modern day hip blues or designer blues. I'm not quite sure. I respect what everybody does, but there are things I don't like. When I go back to the old stuff, and I do listen sometimes even in mono, there's a rawness there that Powers, Frankie, if,
1: frankly, if I just if if I just turn my chair a little bit and look on my wall, I have two framed albums that have been personalized and signed to me that hang over me, and one's Willie Dixon and the other one's Muddy. That's and of awesome. course, you know, yeah, and and of course, my Holy Trinity would have included Chester Burnett, Howling Wolf, but um,
2: that's th- awesome. the
1: impact. The, the impact of those guys is just
2: immeasurable. Powerful. Very powerful. Authentic.
0: Alan, I want to ask it's you very this.
2: Authentic. You can't fake that kind of music. You, know, the, you, you just can't emulate. It's something. You And Alan, what you said earlier, you're correct. It almost makes us want to have that black in our playing, but we'll never be able to do that. You know, there's something to that. The way that they did it, that the phrasing, where it sits in the pocket, their vocals—we've all tried, and oh, I, I have it. No, you, you don't get close. I, I want to ask you this: You try, you, tr-
1: you try, but at the end of the end of the night, Frankie, you still feel small and white.
2: <laughs> yes. You do. I th- I think Keith Richards actually says that sometimes, you know. I think I think there's a part of uh, him as a as a player and an, what his big influences were and I think he might even say that's the stuff we can't do but you know, we do this and they found a great niche because I think they're really raw and I think they're buried in that stuff.
1: Yes.
0: All right, so I'm going to ask you this, because I'm curious. When you see, Alan, uh, from your perspective as a writer, you see a song like Eye of the Tiger, or you see My Sharona by the Knack, these these songs that seem to take on their own lives, that become sometimes big, well, definitely bigger than the albums they're on, but sometimes even just bigger than, than the scene that's going on. Do you look at those and study them and say, hmm, how can I write a song like that? Or do you go, hmm... Why is my song not getting that recognition? Or do you just go, hey, that's a great song. Uh, you know, you know, how, how do you look at those sort of impactful songs like, like My Sharona and, and Eye of the Tiger?
1: Well, I t- I'll tell you, a song like Eye of the Tiger, uh, I found um, the competitive part of my, my consciousness, found it both annoying and intimidating because I went, wow, that feels great. Why don't we have a song that feels just like that one? And then the intelligent side, side of my brain goes, okay, now you know what you have to avoid. You cannot go close to that. You cannot try and replicate it. You've got to find it from within yourself. And you've got to find the feel and the motion and the emotion that comes from within that you hope will have an impact. But when when you hear hear a great song like I As A Tiger, I gotta I gotta confess, guys. I mean, part, part of me goes, God damn it, you know. And it's intimidating. It's like uh, I remember going out to buy a new foreigner record. Uh, Mark Kendall was living with me at the time, and we went went home and put it on the deck to analyze it and see what the competition were doing and so on and so forth. And it got to a song called, I Want to Know What Love Is. And we both just looked at each other and said, we've got to up our game. We've got to be better because this song is absolutely magnificent. And if that's the bar, we know where the bar is. Yeah,
2: and that was the bar. It's a fantastic song. That
0: is the uh, the blueprint for every power ballad or or rock ballad that came after. I mean, let me tell you, you know, uh, it took the Poisons and the deaf leopards and the Bon Jovies a, a while after that to get caught up to to that brilliance. Um,
1: uh, and and not everybody th- got caught up to it.
0: No, and you know what? I think that goes back to the authenticity because. You know, a couple of the bands, they they put out these power ballads and people went, oh, what are hard rock bands doing? But they were authentic, whether it's bringing on the heartbreak from from Def Leppard. But by the time we got to 89, 90, 91 and everybody was doing power ballads, you could tell that the record company said, hey, you need a power ballad because radio and they just got worse and worse and worse. And I think it's because they became less and less authentic. I mean, am I right? Am I wrong? (laughs) Right? Right.
2: Well,
1: what—that's
2: corporations, right? Yes, it is. That's the, that's the corporations. Uh, that's, yeah. That's that's the that's these corporations which are now like these huge. They yes. are they're huge. What eight six billion dollar corporations? Okay, now we're going to have you guys do this, and we're going to sign this. I don't, I don't know that where or if that ever worked, but I know that it wouldn't be attractive to me. But I know everybody tries. And I know people that tried and speaking well, for myself. Let's talk I think about authenticity
1: like a- and let's look at I as the, the tiger for a minute. Um, for me personally, and there is the key word, personally, in my personal reaction to that song, it was about one person. It was very clearly a single statement from, from one position and it was about the spirit it was about having the spirit to pick yourself up, dust yourself down, and keep going. And, you know, just in the small way of, you know, trying to put a band together, trying to get signed, getting all the rejection letters, keeping going, keeping going. That really spoke to me. And it spoke to me on a very personal level. And it was a sense of, you know what? If you have self belief, then keep going until your self-belief can become self-confidence because you start to get there. And that's why a statement like I as a tiger rang so many bells because everybody goes through struggle and everybody thinks, Oh, I'm not good enough, or I'm never going to get there. And that was the beauty of that song. That, that song said, get up off your ass, dust yourself down, keep going. And, and that hit a main vein of consciousness. And that's why that song was so powerful.
0: And and I would imagine, Frankie, that after it became this powerful song, the record company must have come to you and said, "We need a part two. Come on, we need a part two, right?"
2: Well, I, I honestly I don't remember that. I, I I you know a big part of that, and maybe maybe he saw it far before any of us did, Alan was sliced alone. You know he grabbed on to that and he ran with it so maybe at the time you're like this is amazing and I love it and it's a great song and he's gonna get, but maybe he saw past what 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 I saw in it and we saw in it um, so you have to wonder maybe he saw the life of that deeper than even the writer did the writers did I'm not quite sure um, I do know this that when we did burning heart which i I like it I love it um, I did kind of sense, you know, there's no chasing songs here. And even, especially, not even especially, us, we, we can't go chasing Tiger because it's once in a lifetime, if that, as a writer, as, as anything that you would do creatively. So I can remember kind of we were doing Burning Heart, it was kind of getting to that point. It was a little bit plodding. I was thinking to myself, you know, we better stay away from trying to, and I don't even think we were consciously doing it, but I sensed to do what Tiger did. You know, so I kind of shifted my view and I said, well, it's Rocky four and Sly asked us, you know, come up with a song and he had this burning heart idea and he loved it. And it absolutely worked. Um, but there was a moment where I did think to myself, you know, I don't want this to be like chasing Tiger. So we changed it around, put, guitar parts and you know made it unto its own but that's another thing Alan and and Mitch you know you can't certainly you can't chase your own work that's the kiss of death and probably we all fall prey to it and either know consciously or don't know Um, but maybe maybe some more than others and then you start chasing your songs and the sound of that song and that never appealed to me because I saw it as a failing effort every single time I could sense it. I was like, ugh, you know, turn me off to the whole idea. And then I would say, well, let's get, I'll come back to this. So I kind of like to stay away from that stuff.
1: Absolutely, Frankie, absolutely. And, you know, as far as contributing to Great White, one of the determinations I had once we uh, started to get a little bit of momentum was that we would not make the same record that each record had to have a slightly different feel, a slightly different approach, a slightly different mindset. Because if you're not doing that, and if you're not progressing as a writer and a player, then all you're doing is making products for the corporations. And believe you me, Mitch, you know, Frankie Frankie will tell you that, you know, as much as you can, you can preserve your space, and be left alone, and capital used to leave us alone completely, um, still within yourself, you're conscious of we have to maintain a standard here, and that standard is sometimes defined by sales, and that that can mess with your head, you know, and it takes a little bit of strength and a little bit of letting go, a little bit of just let it go. Let's see what happens. And you have to have the courage to do that, to, to move on, and be valid as writers and re- recording artists.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to ask you this, Alan, because I, I forget, but uh, you know, Survivor did The Moment of Truth for The Karate Kid. They did Burning Heart for Rocky IV. They did Eye of the Tiger. Were you involved in any soundtracks? I, I know Guns N' Roses did You Could Be Mine for um, uh, Terminator, but but was that something that was on your plate all the time? Hey, Alan, get us a song for you know. Did the great white guy say, "Hey, get us in a Hollywood movie"? Was that, was that always part of the the conversation? Get us on a movie. Get us on a movie. When you see a band like Survivor having these great uh, hits with with movie soundtracks.
1: Well, actually, in, in the very early days when we were scuffling for a buck. Uh, both Great White and G&R contributed to indie movies. And I didn't mind that because they were just indie movies and it was basically a, a, a payday um, and a small and modest one usually. And it was just to keep noses above the waterline, keep rent paid and so on and so forth. But once, once we started to get a sense of momentum, um, I was a little nervous, especially with Great White with the idea of being tied to a huge movie and having a huge hit, because I could see whether that that could seem like an initial blessing, but it could also be an albatross around you because you have this huge hit, and there's the expectation that you've got to come up with another huge hit. And with Great White, my perception of them was of a working band, that they were a band that Yes, we made records and we made as good a record as we could, but we were about going out and playing live because that to me was the essence of a band. And of course, with GNR, I mean, you know, it just got ridiculous. Um, I mean, that thing just blew up in our faces. I mean, we suffered rejection. Um, The president of Geffen wanted to drop the band before we (laughs) even started recording (laughs) Appetite. Um, you, You know, and MTV wouldn't touch us. Radio thought we were the plague; they wouldn't touch us. And then suddenly, in the beginning of 1988, it was like we were having a nice little little barbecue in the backyard, and somebody came along with a 50-pound, 50 50-gallon 50 drum of kerosene and threw it threw it on the barbecue, and the whole thing just exploded. Um, you know, and tremendous pressure from Geffen to get a follow-up done. Um, The reason for putting out lies was to buy time before we had to do a quote-unquote proper proper follow-up. But there was incredible pressure from Geffen to have another huge selling record. I mean, they they estimated that in the first week of uh, the release of the Illusion records, that they were going to do about $100 million worth of commerce around the world. You don't think David Geffen was in my face? When am I going to get my record? To which I replied, "David, you'll get your record when it's fucking ready." If you'll pardon my friend. Yeah, they don't get it. Yeah, good yeah, old. Um, you know. for
2: for you, Frankie. Bands huh? evolve, Alan. Here, I, I can pick up on that because I was talking. You know, bands when they're when they're left to do what they do, and if they're good and and committed, and there's enough tension, it works. They evolve, so you change. You get better as a drummer. You may get better as a songwriter, or your perspective changes. So you change. You know, if you uh, and when bands are allowed to just kind of evolve and grow and get better, I think they do better. It's that constant pressure that you know it kind of spins down to the artist Managers are always pounding with it. Well, give me another appetite for destruction. Well, you know, sorry, it doesn't exactly. work exactly. You know, you have what, to let the artist. You, it, the artist is a person, so a person grows. When when you stop growing, then, you know, you stop. You you you're you're getting busy dying instead of living. And art, exactly. in all forms, especially music, you have to be able to. Well, the Alan. That's the confines of this business. It's like a stranglehold. You just have to be aware of it, but shut it out and stay true to yourself because you're. It is they. They do try to pigeonhole, put you in. And as a person, Frankie, wrong, you, let's say two, let's say two years Frankie, go Do, by. You, do you remember,
1: think, Frank? Frankie, do you remember in the early seventies that Warner Brothers were on a tear with the records they were putting out, and they were the gold standard of a label in the early seventies? Do you know what their philosophy was? Let us the artists take care of the music and the music will take care of the company. And of course that all went down the tubes when Kinney bought them and asset stripped them. Then there was pressure for the company to put pressure on, on, on the artists to, to deliver records so that they could keep their light bulbs on. But the magic yeah. was in that philosophy. Let the artists take care of the music. The music will take care of the company.
2: And then isn't that why we all at one point in time wanted to be on Warner Brothers? Yes. That's why a lot of us said that's the greatest label because, you know, the Van Halen guys. Well, first off, I don't know if you're really going to tell them to do anything. You know, Um, those artists on Warner Brothers back then, they thrived. They got to be artists. They could do their thing. They left them alone. But, you know, Alan, you and I both know that was a rare instance because, of course, even as they evolved, it all changed. It became corporate. But I always found it interesting that those artists did so well and then the company did amazingly well all by letting them either grow, evolve, get great or just you fall to the wayside maybe because you're not not that you're not talented enough. You just quite don't Hit the bullseye and somebody else does. You know, it's kind of like a process of elimination. Not that that's a bad thing. It's just part of a life. It's part of a process. of how we live. So if bands aren't allowed, if the people in the bands aren't allowed to grow, they're going to change. And then the band collectively isn't allowed to evolve. You know, they go on the road, they do tours, everything changes. Your focus changes. And I think it gets better until. Those fingers reach in, you get a million thumbs in your pie, and they are like, I don't like that pie anymore. That's that that did start, and I do remember as Warner Brothers because everybody wanted to be on Warner Brothers.
0: hmm It was a great label. Now let me ask you this: where where we are currently at? Forty five minutes in. Do we do we want to continue, or do we want to maybe reconvene for for uh, for another part? Because. There's so much to talk about, and, and this, the conversation's been fantastic. I mean, just sitting back as a fan listening to this, you go, wow, listen to these two guys share their experience. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, where do we go from here? Do, should we go another 10 minutes, or, or do we want to say, hey, you
2: know what? There's a lot more to talk about. Let's do a part two there's always going to be a lot to talk about. So you know. could do 10 more and do a part two, or if it's, up, it's your show, Mitch, I'm, yeah. I'm game for whatever it is.
0: Yeah. Alan, what, what do you want to, uh, what, what do you, what, is, what are your thoughts right now?
1: It's entirely up to Frankie. He's our guest. Yep. And as far as I'm concerned, I just lit another cigar. So I'm good with whatever you guys <laughs> want to do.
2: <laughs> That's what I'm doing. Yeah. Monte Crystal A, I'll confess. Absolutely. <laughs> well, okay. Absolutely. I um, am. I do want to... <laughs> now, don't tell me it's not a small world. Right. I was just telling a friend of mine yesterday, you know, be careful nowadays. Why? Everybody knows what everybody else is doing. You know, isn't it funny? Mm. Small world. We're all connected somehow. Even if it's what I call... And Alan, I'm not talking about like Live Nation because I like my you know, The Evil Empire is like the internet to me. As much as I love what it offers our our business and artists and to create and make something out of themselves, and it absolutely does that and gives them an audience. You know, as an older artist, I'm not all that big on the internet. I mean, I like things like that are fun, Mitch. You know what I like. Um, but there's a part of the internet that i'm not all that fond of i I know exactly what you like it's guitars all guitars
0: all the time i I don't know alan if you collect guitars but but between joe bonamassa and frankie sullivan and (laughs) these guys are are like crazy guitar guys i mean they they collect everything right i mean frankie you you okay let me ask you this
2: slash Slash does it he's just done a big blowhard but he's got everything
0: Well, let me let me ask you this then. What's the prize <laughs> possession in your collection in terms of guitars?
2: You, know, Alan, you'll notice because I think I might have borrowed one from Mike Clink at one time. But you know, Slash went out and bought about twenty-five old Les Pauls. So I was getting them as a young player when they were very inexpensive. So they cost only real easy to afford. But somewhere along the line I picked up about seven or eight of them. And, but you know, when I did it guys, it was different. You were out on the road and, and, um, there was, it wasn't a million people now in the game. I'm going to quote that game of selling vintage instruments. You you maybe had four, five, six guys, and maybe only four of them were, were worth the shit to be honest with you. So, and now you got a million, but back then they would come to the show and bring something. It was an inspiration. It wasn't a process of hoarding. You know, it was, oh, I like this. And you felt something, you know, you tickle the strings and say, and if I don't like a guitar, I sell it. So the stuff I have, I like, but they used to come to the shows. And nowadays, everybody's selling. It's scary to me. I don't even know if you would know what you're buying anymore. I really don't. There's so many forgeries out there, but.
1: Yep. I absolutely hear you on that. Um, I do confess that there was a time when I walked into uh, my, my <laughs> studio in LA that I had in my backyard. And I, lo- I looked at my gu- guitars and I went, you've crossed a line. And the line that I thought that I'd crossed was, I could call it a collection rather than a selection. And I let a lot of things go that I just bought because they were beautiful or I thought it was really a cool guitar and so on and so forth, but didn't really use it. And I got to a point of going, you know what? These things are built to be used. And I've got a bunch sitting here in this room that should be in loving hands, creating music. So I let a lot of guitars go and, and, and operated on on a basis of have a selection not a collection
2: that's the here hear that mitch that's bingo and, and and because the ones you don't play like the mint oh with tags i've got some and i had sold some i don't even want to touch them this so mint but to make to make the point even more if when i plug them in they really don't stay in tune They don't particularly sound good. Well, I can tell you why. They don't have any miles on them. The fretboard, the the maple, it's so clean. Well, I like the fretboard that's kind of dirty, that's got fingers that are played on. You know, I've come to learn this over time, so I agree with you, Alan. But back in the days, running around when you had, like, Billy Gibbons and running around and guys and the stuff that was out there was... You could do both, but you shy. Oh, that's too clean. I don't know. What am I going to worry about on the road? It's going to get beat up. No. So you, you, you always, there was just such a good selection. You went with the one, well, oh, this feels great. And it's kind of beat up and you're like, Oh, I wonder where this came from. So you, you would look for the origin of it as opposed to, Oh, look at that. It's such a great car. And then you never drive it. It sits in the garage and you wax it all. Well, that's no fun. It's, it kills time, but right. When you get a couple hundred or three hundred, it's not fun anymore. Three hundred guitars. Well, look,
1: Frank, well Franky, you go
2: through them. Yes.
1: Frankie, I think you can um, You can be someone who will understand what I'm saying when I say this. When you pick up a guitar that you haven't played for a very long time, it feels
2: cold. It just it feels,
1: it has no got,
2: heartbeat to
1: it. it. Exactly, it feels cold. And you have to play it for a while and then it's warm again and it feels like it's got a little bit of soul in it. But an unplayed guitar gets very, very dead.
2: I'll often say, oh, you know, how is that uh, Alan, how's that 1960, Les Paul, the real cherry one that, well, it's a good guitar. Okay, that, to me, that's, forget it. You're not even near the target. If it's if somebody doesn't tell me it's a great guitar, I have no interest in it. Meaning not how it looks aesthetically. It's a great guitar. It's got a vibe to it. You know, some of mine, one of, one of my favorite guitars is beat up. It's got mold from where the guy kept his hand behind the bridge. You know, if they don't have that attraction to them, who played this? They never really sound. Nobody used them. Somebody bought them and I don't know what they did with them. Now, I have gotten a few from original owners, but the guy sat around picking it on his couch and he's got a few nicks in it. Some of those are really, really good, but the ones I like best are the ones that were played, but somebody loved them. You know, you get done playing your yes. guitar. Remember the days, Alan, you wipe it off, you put it, even the days when you'd wipe the strings off, you put it in the case and you just loved it. So I try to look at everyone. If it's just it's an, it's a good guitar. Is no, it's not a great guitar. Put it to that side. I went through that already. All
0: right. In my so lifetime. I'm I'm gonna finish with this one for now, and then we'll we'll do a part two because we're we're getting to an hour. When you look at the guitars, when you're buying them, both Alan and, and Frankie, are you thinking, Wow, Chuck Berry played this. I'm gonna have to have it because Chuck Berry played it. Or you look at it and go. No, I'm buying the guitar because of what it is. It's a Les Paul, it's a Gibson, it's a whatever. Or is it a bit of both, where you buy the the, the great guitar because it's a great guitar, and there's a few that you buy because the guy who played it is somebody that you admire?
2: For me, it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both. I more go, it's a great guitar, but I also like to go, this is a great guitar, and okay, they only made six, and Clapton played one like this in a Chuck Berry movie, you know, later on up the road, you're like, this is a great guitar, then then I like the fact that, you know, when someone might have played it, or like a great, yeah, like a great 355, like a 59, you know, that sounds great, right. not real shiny mint, and, you know, then you go, hey, this is what Chuck Berry played, you know, then it's really cool, but if you're looking at it, and you go, well, Chuck Berry played one of these, I kind of feel like Oh, well, isn't that kind of what the lawyers do? I say that a lot to some of my attorneys. You guys buy those guitars, you hang them over your fireplace, which is absolutely horrible. They dry out, they're no good anymore. Just put them back into circulation because there's a, there is a, and you guys, Alan I, I will tell you this, Mister, there is a large part of this collecting part where these guys, that are extreme. Bill Gates, you know, he owns the Hendrix guitar from Woodstock where these guys go out and pay a million dollars and it's fine and Danny, is it worth it? Absolutely if you're them. But what does the guitar do after that? You know, Jimi Hendrix would say, I bought it the day before Woodstock for 300 bucks because it was white. Now that's the guitar player, you know, the color of the truck, that yeah. the guitar, as opposed to. Well, I got this 65 Dolphin Blue, Dolphine Blue Hardtail Strat. You know, okay, so what? Are these custom cars Fiesta Red? Well, is it a great guitar? Mm. You know, that's when I started going, well, not really. You know, you start looking at custom cars. That's where you kind of cross the line for me, Alan, with guitars. You know what I'm saying? You're really well, do. Well, Frankie,
1: I'll, t- Frankie I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll tell you where I come from uh, as regards to that. Um, I I learned that guitars are an accident of wood and wire, and taught tot- all they
2: are—nuts h- and bolts.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're an accident of wood I, and wire, I, and you yes. can you can spend three and a half grand on something that has no voice. Or I used to have. You remember this this, this Gibson learner guitar, the Melody Maker?
2: Yeah, and I sure. had this little, absolutely. I
1: had this little melody maker. It was a bitch to keep in tune, but I can't tell you how many rhythm tracks on Great White Records we used that guitar because it had right. a voice. And it was a cheap guitar, but it just had a voice. For me, it's does it have a voice? And I don't know if you'll agree with this, Frankie, but I've always believed that when you take a guitar off the wall and you sit there, you can get a sense if there's a voice in that guitar or not before you even plug it in. You can, you can, apart from the feel, you can hear a resonance in the wood.
2: Oh, absolutely. To me, if it doesn't sound good without an amp, it's not going to sound very good with one. It's really not. Amen. You know. Amen, the, amen, brother. I, there you go. There you know you what go. I call them? You guys, you want, you want to know what I call them? So, and remember this: they're tr- they're trees with strings on them. Think mm-hmm. about it. I say sometimes, look, it's a tree with strings on it. I'm not going to pay. And you know, Alan, you know, these Les Pauls, they're getting $600,000, 700000 for these guitars. Oh, I know. It's now, crazy. mind you, they were $285 new, and then the case was under thirty. but can you imagine? And they sell. It just blows my mind. It blows my mind. Now, Peter Green didn't pay that much for his famous Les Paul that's out there and Mike bootlegged oh, no. Peter. You know, the Peter, Peter,
1: Peter Green flipped his uh, pickups around, and Slash's main that. guitar, which I which I gave to him, was a bootleg '59 that was brilliantly put together by a luthier using um, pieces from the period. And before I took it to, to Slash. I took out the old pickups and I put Alnico twos in it because I knew Slash was not looking to replicate '59, but he wanted something '59 plus. So I put Alnico twos in it, hmm. and that's still his main studio guitar.
2: Yeah, hey, when they when they're good, you just can you play better because the you can resonate the guitar resonates and. The sound comes out, oh, and when it's the right sound, you play better. The song gets a little better. The solo gets better. Everything kind of gets uplifted. I had a yes, guitar. I'll tell you one one specific story. So I bought a, a Mary Case. So this is a '59 Stratocaster. Blonde, I know exactly what you're
1: talking um, about.
2: Both parts, but this. They, so it had a rosewood. They call them slab boards. Okay. Well, rosewood fingerboards. So it was the third fingerboard that was Rosewood. They ever put on a Stratocast and it was gold. I bought it. I don't remember what it was for. I think I might've paid three or 35 for it. And I never liked, I played it and I tried it and I tried and I always kind of said, I don't know about that. Meaning I was too young to say it's not a great guitar. My tech loved the guitar and he was a good guitar player. So at the end of a tour, I said, I don't know. You know, I said, Joe, here's your tour bonus. He still has it to this day. Now, mind you, it's probably, it's worked in triple digit figures, but not to me. I mean, it's worked it more sentimentally that I gave it to my tech as a tour bonus, but it never, I would try it Alan and Mitch, I tried it in the studio. I don't really know. Well, oh, this is just the filler part. And I'd play it and say, I don't really? Like it. I never connected with the guitar. Never can that was one of the best things I did. Rather than give him a bonus of, you know, money, I said, you want a bonus, take that guitar. To this day he has it, he loves it, and that's a good place for it, but not with me. It just didn't didn't do it for me.
1: There you go. Frankie, I gotta tell you it has been an absolute pleasure to talk with you.
2: Likewise.
0: Oh, this th- th- this was fantastic. So, so we're definitely going to have to to do a part two because there's so so much to cover. Uh, but on that, uh, as we say, merci beaucoup to, to both of you. Thank you so much. This is this was a, a compelling, oh, no fascinating hour of 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 rock talk.
2: We'll talk, and Alan, It was an absolute. I had a great time. Let me just say it was great fun, Mitch. It's always great fun with you. Um, and let's do this again. Yeah, We could um, talk, Alan can tell us more about business and then I could say, yeah, and this, because <laughs> I do like that too, because I always, I was always, Alan, I was always half foot in the, okay, I'm going to produce and, and I I dig the managers, dig that. I'm, I'm an artist that actually likes the managers to this day. Yeah, but you've had grade one. You
0: had Tom Concello, consolo well, for well, for... you know,
2: the uh, some of the other guy I will tell you, I might think that, but if you pulled the other guys, you might get four. No, we didn't, you never know.
0: You never know. But you know, but know Tom's them, Tom's you, great. You
2: got well, some of the guys are not happy. So I was always kinda one side of my brain is in, Okay, I'm a guitar player. I love guitar and I love to write and be in a band at Plant Stage and the other half was I actually understand what Producers, you know, are paying a fortune to buffer, but he's way down. What the producer's here for, and why my managers in my life? So I actually understand the part that people used to say, "What do you? What's wrong with you?" <laughs> and I always believed in, "Why are you going to fight your manager?" You know, because that goes on. It used to go on a lot, so we can get into that.
0: Oh yeah, I want I want to Let's hear those. Make that
1: for the next time round.
0: Yes, thank you, everybody, and uh, let me just hit hit. Okay. Let me hit end on this tape here.